The Insurance Coffee House is hosted by Insurance Search. Insurance Search provides executive recruitment services to insurance companies, brokers, and insurtechs in the UK and across the United States, attracting and retaining the most successful leaders to your insurance business. To find out more, visit insurance-search.com. The Insurance Coffee House, the place where you get to meet and be inspired by the most successful insurance business leaders from across the world. Hosted by Nick Hoadley, CEO of Insurance Search. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Karen Angelson, who is the Chief Human Resources Officer, the Chief Legal Officer at Tokyo Marine North American Services. She's also the Group Deputy Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for Tokyo Marine on a global basis. Karen, welcome to the show today. I hope I got that introduction correct. You did. Thanks for having me today. I realized a lot of titles. Quite a tongue twister. I imagine your email signature is quite a long one. <laughs> well, when, the, when folks <laughs> ask me what I do, I'm like, hmm, <laughs> simplify this. Depends on the context. It depends exactly. who you're speaking to. Aaron, we're in the insurance coffee house today. It's great to have you here. What's your go-to coffee of choice this morning? My typical go-to is Dunkin' Donut. It's my favorite coffee. Or if I'm feeling really, really needy, I will go out to um, a local Dunkin' Donut store and grab an extra large cup of decaf before I sit down at my desk. Would you mind sharing with our listeners about your career background, the journey that you've had, and what's led you into those C-suite positions that you have at the moment? So by way of background, I have been with the Tokyo Marine Group over 22 years. Went to college in the States, then went to, to law school and practiced at large law firms, which is pretty typical 90s coming out of law school in both California and, and New York. And I'll be honest, I wasn't overly enchanted with the practice of law at big law firms, nothing against any of them, just, you know, was not was not in love. I literally got cold called one morning as I was sitting at the law firm working on some brief at O Dark 30. And it was executive recruiter. They mentioned that they had an insurance company, did not necessarily have a particularly large footprint in the US at the time. And would I be interested in going over and, and potentially heading up their HR department? They sort of liked the context of having a lawyer you know, if you will, oversee their HR department, which at the time I felt was unique. I don't know if 22 years later, that's not so unique anymore. In any event, why they came upon me is actually yeah. I was a general litigator, but I had a specialty in labor and employment law and had done a lot of those cases in both California and, and mm -hmm. New York. And ironically, I had worked on an article in an international law journal with one of the partners at my New York law firm at the time. It had been translated into Japanese. So wow. the executive recruiter came across it. And honestly, I think she thought I was bilingual. And it was Tokyo Marine, yeah. and absolutely a Japanese home office based company. Yeah. It was a little bit of serendipity. And I, she called me. I was like, yeah. yeah, I don't speak Japanese, but there's a nice translator I can refer yeah. you to. So yeah. in any event, met with Tokyo Marine, uh, interviewed with people, really liked it, thought the opportunity was interesting. HR departments had often been my clients, quite honestly, on, on the litigation side. But as you know, by the time you're in litigation, something has gone sideways. Sometimes someone's fault, sometimes not anybody's fault. So it seems like a real great opportunity to get in to work with you know, as a client and perhaps be able to put in policies, procedures, best practices that would mitigate <laughs> the need mm. for having to call outside counsel. So I joined them in 2001, which was That's great. Cool. I'll be honest with you, litigating employment 
related cases and giving advice on benefit plans, very different than administering the day to day. You know, I had to surround myself with with people who knew a lot more than I did on those operational administrative tasks. You know, I always like to say to people, HR can be extremely sophisticated and out of the box and all sorts Mm -hmm. of wonderful things. But guess what? If people are not being paid correctly on time and are not able to access their medical benefits and such, you can have the most fabulous organizational design and strategy. It's not going to be worth very much if someone's not getting paid. So so really how to learn those nuts and bolts, which I did. That must have been a huge step for you at the time. I know you studied at Harvard Law School. Presumably you were set for a big and long distinguished career in private practice as a litigation attorney. That must have been quite a jump joining an insurance company and heading up the HR division. A hundred percent. I, in a million years, you know, whether it was my last year of college or any of my three years at Harvard Law School, never in a million years would I have thought that I would have ended up running an HR department in an insurance company, like both the industry... Yeah, and the yeah. function seemed an opposite where I sort of saw myself. I like to joke and, and Harvard Law School is a wonderful institution, um, but I like to joke, you know, you sort of come out of Harvard Law School and what are you ready for to argue a case at the Supreme Court? Ignore the 20 years of the case prior <laughs> to that point. So, <laughs> somebody else will handle that. Certainly was a, a turn of events. I'm a big believer personally, like as long as I'm learning you know, and and there is something new to learn, I'm interested. For me, boredom is a really challenging hill. While some people may not view, um, you know, necessarily the nuts and bolts of an HR department as satisfying some, you know, intellectual idea of something, I just found it really interesting. I mean, I like to know how things work. I'm probably pretty mechanically oriented. And as long as I was learning, I was happy. So I did. And I learned a lot in those first couple of years, how to run compensation plans, how to administer a compensation cycle, what happens when someone injures themselves at work, like the nuts and the bolts. How do you actually process payroll how do you hire someone <laughs> things of that nature and in 2001 when you joined the business what was the size of the company there how did the company look at that stage tokyo marine at that time at least in the u.s was candidly kind of small the only sort of footprint we had at the time in the united states the company called tokyo marine management inc it was uh the u.s branch of tokyo marine and nichito yeah. fire which was the parent company back in japan i would say uh, during those first couple of years the gross written premium probably measured just for that U.S. entity anywhere from 350 million to 500 million and up and down within there. We had anywhere again from like 400 to 500 employees. We had inclusive in that number was probably between 35 and 50 expatriates sent from Japan because most of the job of that company at the time was really what we would call reverse flow business. You know, So if our parent company had large clients globally and they had operations in the US, we would write you know, and, and service those accounts. So it really was an arm of the parent to help make sure those global accounts you know, went well, were well-serviced, and, and that was it. So In many respects, the size was a great training ground for me because it was part of such a larger global entity. I'd like to say, even though we were at what would be called a mid-size, small to mid-size corporation in the US, we did everything the right way. You know what I'm saying? Because there was such a large parent and because we were dealing with such large, reputable Japanese companies as our clients, you didn't cut corners, you did everything the right way. And it was a wonderful opportunity to learn things where you were small, 
but yet doing things the right way, paying for the right vendors, you know, and and making the right decisions because you had that large parent behind you. So a fantastic base to start and build upon. Where is the business now? Twenty years later, I know there's been obviously several sort of key acquisitions, companies now that make up that group there in the states. Where's the company now? So I would tell you, and this is my best guesstimate, uh, in the United States, we now have this uh, three very large holding companies. One yeah. is Tokyo Marine North America, Inc., and uh, that is the entity for which I have responsibility for human resources and legal. There is another very large holding company, Tokyo Marine HCC, and then a third one, Delphi uh, Financial. So if we focus on Tokyo Marine North America, Inc., that now is comprised of that original Tokyo Marine management entity. It also yep. has the first insurance company of Hawaii, Philadelphia insurance companies, and a shared service company, Tokyo Marine North America Services. That Tokyo Marine North America Inc. all by itself in excess of $4 billion, uh, in gross written premium, in addition, employs more than 3,000 people again, for all those entities combined. And then you have other very significant, as I mentioned, two other significant holding companies that you know also contribute significant revenue to the group, again, in the billions, again, with each one having thousands of employees itself. So compare that to 350 to 500 people, you know, and maybe 500 million of grocer and premium. It, it's multiple, multiple, multiple. Great. And it must have been a really interesting journey during that time. In terms of the roles that you have now, so chief human resources officer, chief legal officer, but then also for on the group level, the deputy chief of diversity and inclusion officer. How do you find the hours in the day to combine <laughs> all those roles? The one silver lining of the pandemic, and I say that very cautiously because the pandemic was obviously, you know, awful for so many people, mm. the economy, lives, etc. But the one silver lining, as you know, and I'm talking to you as I'm sitting from my home office, is that in some ways, working from home and, and the hybrid work schedules that a lot of, you know, companies have sort of landed on, turned to both during the course of the pandemic and as the pandemic is, is officially sort of ending, has really in some ways length supersized or lengthened the workday, if you will. I'm often on calls uh, with overseas entities early in the morning, whether that's 6, 7 a.m. And I am often on calls, you know, with overseas entities 7, 8, 9 p.m. at night. What has changed is those times used to be where I would spend in a commute. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Sitting yeah. on mass yeah. transit. So it's not that there are more hours in the day. There are a few hour, mm -hmm. fewer hours commuting that can be spent to greater purpose. So Karen, in our discussion today, obviously as Chief Human Resources Officer, and then also in your position as the, the Group Deputy Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer across the group there, Tokyo Marine. What are you seeing, particularly on the diversity and inclusion side of things? What are we seeing in terms of change? What are you implementing there as a business? How are you finding that position? I know it's a particular area of passion of yours. So I think we need to sort of table set to explain sort of a mm -hmm. little bit, I'm going to say the philosophy and structure of, of the Tokyo Marine Group and then sort of roll forward as sort of what we view or what I view candidly as some mm -hmm. of the key areas we need to dive into as it relates to diversity and inclusion. I will preface this by saying, as we mentioned, Tokyo Marine has grown by leaps and bounds, not only in the US, but also overseas uh, through acquisitions, et cetera. And one of the, I would say, one of the secret sauces, if you will, of the way Tokyo Marine does acquisitions is that they really uh, believe that when they acquire a company, that part of the success 
And the reason they wanted to acquire the company is because of the existing management team. And in the due diligence process, they spend a lot of time figuring out the corporate culture of the potential target to see that it's a fit, to see that they have the same core values, you know, that they believe in being a good company. And that's extremely important. With that, once an acquisition is consummated, they do not walk in and typically what I call chop off the head. Meaning yeah. that they walk into the company, they're like, okay, senior management team, bye-bye, you know, mm-hmm. install their people, slap their name on the wall and walk out, which often was the way that Western companies often mm-hmm. did acquisitions. And certainly what I would see quite honestly back in private practice, they don't believe in that. And with that comes a really interesting governance model where they very much have a federated model, meaning that absolutely everyone understands who the ultimate owner is and ultimately you know ultimately the financials roll up and all of that good stuff and that you are expected to behave and operate your business in accordance with Tokyo Marine Group principles but within that there's a fair amount of autonomy to keep your business fresh to to focus on the niches that that candidly provide value to your group company and the group as well as support uh, the management team in running their business. So with that, when we think about diversity and inclusion in a federated model, it very much brings up some challenges and also opportunities. So no one at Tokyo Marine is going to march in from the top and say, you shall do this as it respects DNI. What they will do is create guiding principles, make clear everyone understands what our mission and vision is with respect to diversity and inclusion, and then ask them to take those principles, all that goodness, and tell us how in their cultural context, in their group company, they are going to move the ball forward. And that's really, really, really important because candidly, having operations all over the world, an area of particular focus in one country or company for diversity and inclusion efforts may not make a lot of sense in another. And I, and I always yeah. give the example yeah. of, you know, if if there are issues with, with ageism, I'm going to call it, in, in one area of the world, and you try to deploy that across the world, it may not make a lot of sense. For example, in Japan, which has an age-based seniority system, wouldn't necessarily be culturally relevant. And they'd be like, mm. well, how is that helpful? <laughs> you know, that mm. we don't have any problems, you know, in terms of ageism here. So we think it's really important, you know, from both a practical and candidly from a philosophical level to set those guiding principles and then have each group company tell us how they are moving forward with whatever their particular challenges or opportunities may be on diversity and inclusion. But make no mistake, we want to see forward motion and progress, and they are certainly accountable to make sure that they are doing that. When I think about diversity and inclusion in general and in the insurance industry, look, let's be a little bit honest. In in the U.S. and in the Western countries, it has a reputation for being an older white man business. And I think if, if you really did a comprehensive look or analysis of statistics of the industry would probably, (laughs) if we're being candid with each other, might bear that out. So, you know, it's very important, of course, that starts and is changing. It starts changing and is changing. Now, how do you do that change? Look, I always say to people, if there were an easy answer, if there were a one size fits all solution, every company, every industry would be doing it. 
but that's yeah. clearly not the case. When I think about, you know, the group companies that that I support, I think about we really all need to focus on how we're doing talent development and how we're engaging in talent acquisition. I can tell you from my own experience, and, and I have many colleagues, not only in the insurance industry, but in HR across the US in different industries through different, obviously, networking groups, et cetera. George Floyd and his murder was certainly a wake-up call to many folks in, you know, in the corporate community in the US. And what happened was, I would say, in terms of talent acquisition, there was a run to try to engage, broaden the talent pipelines from HBCUs, which is historically Black uh, colleges and universities in the U.S., which maybe had not been part of the talent pipelines of many different industries, including insurance, historically. And so I think many industries companies ran to sort of get involved or try to get involved you know, with those universities, colleges. I'm going to be honest, I don't know how successful folks have been breaking in to, to, to those colleges and universities to, to diversify their, their talent pipelines. I, I'm guessing those colleges and universities probably got overwhelmed yeah. <laughs> by request. And I understand, I imagine if I'm them, you're starting to wonder about the sincerity. Is this a flash mm. in the pan? Are you making systemic changes in your organizations, right? So that if people come in at the entry level, are they going to have all the opportunities and avenues for development and yeah. succession you would want them to have? That's why I say, you know, it really needs to be a two-pronged approach. Yes, we should definitely be expanding and looking critically at where we're attracting and trying to, to get talent from at the beginning. But we also need to be extremely deliberate thoughtful and intentional in terms of our talent development opportunities once you bring diverse folks or candidates into your organization. Are there unconscious biases in some of your talent processes, whether that's performance management and how people get rated and raises on an annual or more often basis, how you select people for stretch opportunities, how you select people for, for leadership programs. And now with this hybrid workforce, are we engaging in proximity bias? Meaning like you're more likely to give those opportunities to someone who's coming into the office more often or sits right outside your door. So I think that there's a lot of work that needs to be done on both talent acquisition and talent development yeah. to really fundamentally start changing how our organizations uh, succeed and work um, and, and really embed diversity and inclusion into their practices. Yeah, absolutely. Very much chicken and egg situation as well as talk there about you know entry level attracting people into entry level positions, which is great priority to have to then have a pool of talent to then develop and bring through the company into senior positions. But often it's hard to get that entry level of those junior positions, those middle management positions, if those people are not seeing the senior leaders, you know, who look like them or from similar backgrounds to them. So it is a chicken and egg situation. And I think it's important to focus at both ends of the spectrum really at the same time. So, you know, also looking at the senior executive team and identifying areas, identifying people who could help that board or help that senior leadership team to be more diverse, which then can attract the pipeline and attract talent in more junior positions to then train up and bring through. It is. And as we started off this, you know, this sort of question, 
The reality is, as I said, if you look at the demographics, certainly in the U.S. of the insurance industry, it is an older white male dominated profession, particularly at the senior level. And I think one of the challenges is, you know, as an insurance company, and I mean this for any insurance company, what if you have, you know, candidates um, who are more diverse or from underrepresented groups in your own company's population, and you're lucky enough to be able to get them in the door, how do you sort of ensure for them that there are not going, there's not going to be some form of glass ceiling? Do you know what I'm saying? At some yeah. point that they can't go above, you have to, again, be real deliberate and intentional. And I think you kind of need to address, if you will, the elephant in the room and say, you're right in your leadership team, perhaps does not look particularly diverse today, if that's the mm. case for your organization. Mm. And then say, but here is really the commitment, not only from those folks who will talk to you about their commitment to diversity, what they see was different 25, 30 mm. years ago when maybe mm. they entered yeah. the profession, you know, and all the things that they see their organization is doing so that this leadership team will look different. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. 20, 30 mm. years from now. And I think you really need to get buy-in, you know, not only from your existing employees and the existing leadership team, but also from the candidates and, and the talent you're bringing in, that this is not a one and done. This isn't a flash in the pan, that this is something this organization is truly committed to. I think a savvy either applicant or, or a new person to your organization, if you are sincere, you know, in your efforts, if it is not lip service, if your senior team truly buys into that, I think it can be felt, quite honestly. Um, I, I really do. If it is lip service, you will not succeed. I think people are shrewd, whether they're one year out of university or 10 years out of university. I think they're shrewd. And I think they know nonsense when they see it and smell it. And we need to be better than that. I certainly think that the Tokyo Marine Group is better than that, but I think all of us in the insurance industry need to be better than that. Absolutely. And I think for the carriers, for the big insurance companies out there, I think they do have a responsibility to set the way that international businesses often, you know, they've got a huge capital assets, different to some of those agencies and brokers, oh, yeah. you know, who make up a lot of that mid-market and where there is a lot of succession planning, you know, being passed down to their sons and daughters and you know diversity and inclusion is a very much a hard challenge in that situation but i do think it is on the corporates on global brands to really lead the way on that it's good to see that a lot of companies are doing that and taking that seriously karen brings us nicely onto the espresso round now where the questions are short sharp and straight to the point so uh, we know you like your large decaf with your blender sweetener in the morning are you ready for the espresso round now i'm gonna try the espresso round. Aaron, what one piece of advice would you have for other senior HR executives looking to build out best practice for hiring exceptional talent into the organization? I think we have had a habit in the insurance industry of going to our tried and true sources, if you will, for hires, whether that's from agents or brokers, depending again on the position you're mm. looking for, whether that's from large consulting firms, again, depending on the position mm. you're looking for. I think that as the insurance industry has aged, quite honestly, and, and certainly in the US, they kept talking about a silver tsunami uh, in terms of folks leaving uh, the insurance industry. And we've seen a little bit of that at the end of the pandemic. I think folks who were perhaps debating whether to leave or not have sort of said, I don't want to spend more of my life, you know, not being able to live. And I think the pandemic, you know, made that decision for some people to just move on to the next stage. Um, we need to be more creative 
you know, in how we find talent. And we need not to be constrained candidly by the traditional um, risk management programs that exist at various colleges and universities. Don't misunderstand. They are wonderful training grounds, but there aren't that many of them, quite honestly. And and we're going to cannibalize each other if we're all fighting over the same yeah. Example, 100 candidates from XYZ school. So mm-hmm. I think we need to think more broadly. I think what we need to do, quite honestly, as, as an industry to that exceptional talent, we need to sell our value proposition, quite honestly, to folks, both um, in university, recent graduates, as well as you know folks who may be mid-level in their career, maybe not loving what they're doing. And there is value to be had in being part of the insurance industry. As we started off this conversation in a million years, I never thought that I would be in insurance. Your testament to that. The reality is, is that honestly, I wasn't in love with what I was doing at the time. Mm. You know, I consider myself a capable person and candidly, someone at Tokyo Marine thought, hey, let's give her a chance. This is not what she typically did. So I think we have to look at some non-traditional pathings Mm. for folks to get them into insurance. But the way to do that is to really, as I mentioned, emphasize our value proposition. You know, in Japan, insurance is looked at as a social good, something that helps, something that comes in when there's a crisis and makes things better and tries to return things to the status quo so people can move on with their lives. Unfortunately, in the U.S. and some Western countries, insurance is viewed kind of as a necessary evil. We as an industry have not done enough to counter that perception. So, you know, how are we going to get exceptional talent? Yeah, you can count on the risk management programs, but there aren't that many of them. Mm -hmm. But B, we need to look at non-traditional sources or pathings for hire and really leverage the good that insurance does. We have not been very good at that as an industry, and we need that to change. That's something we can all learn from and we can all aspire to, actually. Attracting people from other industries also will help with diversity and inclusion as well, bringing 100%. people from non-traditional insurance backgrounds, you know, selling what the opportunity is because there's so, so many people, you know, people like yourself, Aaron, who started off, you know, training in law or training in another great profession, end up in insurance and don't leave because it's a fantastic place to work. There's incredible opportunity there. And it's about educating and getting that message out there more. A hundred percent. You laugh, but now that I am, you know, not 12 anymore when I started Tokyo Marine, (laughs) but, you know, many of my friends and colleagues have children who are in universities, et cetera, you know, going to be looking for jobs. And I always tell them, I'm like, insurance is a really great career. It's a great career. There's so many avenues to take. And and Mm. I keep talking about that and trying to sell everyone, but I could, I could use some more help in that regard. I definitely think the last five years or so, the insurtech companies who are coming to the market, I think actually helps in that because they're certainly attracting people from diverse yes. backgrounds, from different industries, and then they're becoming part of the insurance ecosystem and moving on to some of the more traditional insurance you know, carriers and brokers as well. So that helps. Karen, if you had one piece of advice for a senior executive who was coming to interview with you there at Tokyo Marine North American Services, what would that one piece of advice be to an executive coming in to see you guys? Your authentic self. I can't stress that enough. I would tell you certainly at 
TMNA S and all the TMNA companies, we really pride ourselves on our transparency and our openness and our authenticity with how we deal with each other at work, with how we deal with our clients, um, candidly, and our stakeholders back at home office, uh, the community at large. And I would really encourage someone to be authentic. Um, someone comes in who comes in huffing and puffing about all of their, you know, how fabulous they are. I'd be concerned. Yeah. <laughs> you know, is that how they're going to be when they're sitting at their desk? Authentic, true to themselves. And I have, and I think we have a lot of respect for people who are open-minded, meaning like yeah. I expect seasoned people to come in with a point of view. I'd be more concerned if they had no point of view after working in the industry for a lot of years, but I expect them to be able to be challenged and integrate, you know, new ways of thinking and for it to potentially modulate or change or maybe not their viewpoint. So being authentic, being open-minded is always, I think, a recipe for success, whether it's in an interview or candidly at a, at a job. Absolutely. That authenticity is really key. On a slightly lighter note now, across those 20 years, I'm sure you've seen an awful lot of interviews during that time. Is there one situation, one scenario, particular moment of humor, particularly funny answer, something that you just couldn't believe happened in that interview. Have you got anything that you can share with us? Sure. So this was very early on. It was, you know, for Tokyo Marine Management. I don't even remember the position that I was interviewing for. But remember, at the time, we were under 500 people. It was a very slim HR department. Mm. There was one person doing talent acquisition. And often I would piggyback in on the interview, you know, just to kind of move things yeah. along, right? We were definitely interviewing for an individual contributor. Don't ask me the department or the role. I have no idea. But the person came in, hadn't run, you know, an insurance in the US, you often have to run background checks, but that's, you know, later. And there are all sorts of laws now about, you know, whether you can run them on criminal, what you can't, but put that to a side because this is 20 yeah. something years ago. In any event, we had the, the gentleman's resume, and there was a big gap in time on his resume. You know, I don't even remember how many years. So uh, in the U.S., certainly then, and I believe now you can certainly ask someone. So, you know, I noticed there's a 15 year you know, gap in your resume. You know, what were you doing during that time yeah. or whatever? And the gentleman was very honest and uh, he told me he was in prison. 15 years. It was something like that. Wow. Yeah. That's a long time. <laughs> sort of move on to other things. There are various laws in the U.S. that, you know, if we had proceeded, and I can't recall anymore, to a, mm. to a background check, he may or may not have been employable because of the laws in the U.S., the federal yeah. crime and stuff like that. But nevertheless, that was, I would say, one of the most surprising. <laughs> Very surprising, yeah. And hard Sur to row back surprising. from once you asked that question. Thank you for that. We're almost at the end of our time together today. Time has definitely flown. Do you have one piece of closing advice for our listeners? If anyone is considering an opportunity at the moment, maybe they're interested in Tokyo Marine as a group or for the North American services there encompassing Philadelphia and First Insurance Company of Hawaii, where should they go? What opportunities do you have? We are hiring. Let me let me make that clear. I welcome everyone. You can either go to philly.com, P-H-L-Y.com. You can go to T-M-N-A-S.com, T-M-N as in Nancy, A-S as in Sam.com, or any of the Tokyo Marine Group websites. We list our open 
positions. We encourage you, you know, to apply, start a profile with us. We are thrilled to entertain new talent, or even if you haven't been in the industry, we, you know, we'd absolutely love to talk to you. So please don't be shy. In terms of advice, if you've never been in the insurance industry, I think just be really upfront and genuine about that. You know, what ends up happening today with all the job boards and the way things are scraped and people apply to a million things, you may be blasting out your resume to 15, 20, 100 employers. My advice is take a moment before you blast it out and think about that cover letter, you know, and indicate why that particular company is of interest to you. If maybe there's nothing on your resume that really you know, meshes, matches, if you will, with why you would be interested in insurance, you know, because as the talent acquisition team sitting on the other side of these blasts, we're like, did they know they were applying to an insurance (laughs) company? Was this an accident? You know, so again, be intentional, be thoughtful Mm -hmm. about those, you know, sort of resume blasts, as I call them, so that you are seriously considered. No, thank you. Karen, it's been a really great discussion today. I really enjoyed hearing, particularly talking about the diversity initiatives you have there and what we can all learn from the wider insurance industry. Thank you for joining us on the show. And yeah, I hope to see you again in the future. Absolutely. Thanks again so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Happy to chat with you anytime. Thank you for listening to the Insurance Coffee House with Nick Hoadley. Join us next time for another episode packed with insights and advice for senior leaders, C-suite executives, and ambitious insurance professionals. Stream all episodes at insurance-search.com.